Welcome to Policy Pod, P-O-R-F podcast. The Ideas Factory is an exclusive series by ORF that delves into the big geopolitical events that affect India and the world. Hello and welcome to the Ideas Factory. I'm Nakma. The Russia-Ukraine war. It's been six months since the war started and that's what we will look at. How has it impacted the world outside of the region? We will also look at the legacy of the last Soviet leader, former Soviet uh, President uh, Gorbachev, who just passed away this week. We will look at the heightened US-China tension because the US now approving the sale of more weapons to Taiwan. And of course, the big story from India the commissioning of Vikrant in the Navy, why it matters to us and why and how will it really affect um, our Navy or our naval capabilities. Welcome to the Ideas Factory, Hush. I would like to begin with the US-Russia war. It's been 200 days since the war started, six months. If we look at the UNHRC figures, about 5,500 civilians have been killed Russian soldiers have been killed, Ukrainian soldiers have been killed. Six months into the war, about uh, 20% territories occupied, Ukrainian territories occupied by the Russians. But, uh, you know, so many sanctions and restrictions. How has it really changed? The war never stopped. Also, when we look at this, the the stand of different countries towards Russia, uh, I would also like to understand, has India really changed its stand because on the 24th of August, for the first time, India voted against Russia uh, on the issue of Zelensky addressing. Uh, India also is holding a meeting of court on the Indo-Pacific initiatives. So can we really say that while trying to balance uh, between Russia and the West, India somehow has shifted its ground as far as the Russia-Ukraine war is concerned? Nagma, I think for India, this is a very, very difficult situation. Of course, in, you know, uh, India would have liked that this war never happened um, because uh, so many of its foreign policy priorities have to be adjusted. So many challenging diplomatic maneuvers have to be undertaken by India because of this conflict. And it has put India in a very, very difficult position. So India, uh, much as India proclaims its friendship to Russia, uh, this war has cast uh, a shadow over India's um, economic uh, future, its its uh, diplomatic ties, and increasingly the the you know the, the balancing act that India is having to perform with various actors. So while you you know as you as you are mentioning, India has voted uh, in, you know largely uh, abstained and also give, given a strong uh, sense that the publicly India would not uh, name Russia as an aggressor. This has caused frustration uh, with its Western partners. But that's the stand that India has taken, that India wants uh, ultimately uh, this this conflict to end through diplomatic means. Uh, India has been shifting to a position where it is now saying that, look, uh, ultimately international law is important. Ultimately, territorial integrity and sovereignty of countries are important. And those uh, norms have to be upheld. But it is not. it has not named Russia as an aggressor. While at the same time, it has pursued its ties with the West. It has continued to engage with the West more substantively. And of course, uh, uh, the, the pressure on India because of its buying oil from Russia continues. So, uh, so I think there are multiple issues uh, that get embedded in India's response. And one of the interesting things that is happening uh, this week uh, is this Vostok 22, the military exercises that India is undertaking, where 
uh, India is participating uh, with China uh, in an exercise that Russia has convened in its Far East. Now, what is interesting here is, is how the diplomatic compulsions of India spill, in, spill out into the open. You know, on the one hand, you have a country like China with whom India does not have a normal relationship, quote unquote, as we are being told. Uh, yet we are participating in the uh, Indian army contingent is participating with Russia, with Chinese army and many other armies in a multinational exercise called Vostok 22. But as part of the same exercise, when Russians and the Chinese wanted to do a drill near South China Sea, India has taken a step back. India has said, we are not going to participate in this leg of the exercise uh, because this is something that Japan uh, finds offensive because these exercises, the maritime leg of these exercises will be happening in uh, in, in the Sea of Japan. And Kuril Island's dispute with between uh, Japan and Russia uh, may, meant that Japanese defense minister had to come out and say that these exercises are unacceptable. So India has taken a step back there. India, India has said that we will not participate in the maritime contingent, but they are going ahead. We are going ahead with participating in the military exercises at the army level, uh, which are happening in the Far East. So I think this this kind of diplomatic juggler, jugglery that India is having to contend with is part of, uh, of I think, the way uh, Ukraine has exposed or Ukraine crisis has exposed uh, the fundamental fault lines in global politics. Uh, the, 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 the iron curtain between uh, Russia and uh, the West uh, is getting uh, tightened. Uh, and India is, uh, in an ideal world, India would not have liked that. India would have liked some kind of an uh, engagement between the two. And of course, India's most important challenge being China, India would have liked the focus today to have remained squarely on China. So I think this the sense that while Russia is a very important partner, India will continue to engage with Russia uh, on, on matters of uh, regional security, defense and energy. India also wants to work with the West when it comes to the Indo-Pacific, when it comes to China. And I think that is what is coming out uh, of, from India's uh, perspective. Uh, as, as a consequence of this of this larger Ukraine crisis and how India is navigating this very, very difficult diplomatic terrain. Yes, there's a very fine line that India has to do. Well. But also, when we look at the war, it's been 200 days of the war, uh, Harsh. Uh, what has come out of it? And how has it now we see the impact of the war much more on the region outside? Uh, you know, all almost all the countries look at what's ha happening in Europe, the energy crisis, power crisis, the oil crisis. So we, we are now seeing the impact very clearly in the rest of the world. And there seems to be no end to this war. Absolutely. I don't think uh, neither of the two protagonists, uh, you know, Ukraine or, 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 or Russia are willing to uh, come to the negotiating table. Uh, uh, both sides um, are very much insistent on their maximalist demands. Uh, Russia still is pushing uh, while it, it initially pulled back from Kiev. Uh, the southern and eastern Ukraine is now the focus. In fact, Ukrainians are now pushing back uh, as part of their counteroffensive that they've launched uh, in, in an attempt to take Kherson, uh, you know, the, 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 the city which, which was the first city that, that the Russians took. So I think there is a, there is a counteroffensive going on. Uh, and and uh, Ukrainians continue to press for more support from um, uh, from the West. Americans have given more than 13 billion uh, over the last six months, and another uh, billion uh, are in the pipeline. Uh, a few billions are in the pipeline, and I think the wider Western world is, as of now, united uh, in in its uh, uh, disengagement from from Russia. But as you point out, 
Uh, inflation is at an all-time high. Fuel and food prices are rising. There is going to be at some point war fatigue in Western nations. So then I think how, do, how will the Western leadership, Western pol political entities respond to the aspirations of the local population will be an important determinant as far as the Western unity is concerned because Ukrainian position is linked to Western unity. Ukraine could not have taken the stand without West united uh, behind it. And so far uh, that unity has, has been upheld. So far, uh, and many of the strategic ambitions of Russia uh, have not come to fruition uh, in terms of uh, you know whether the NATO expansion is concerned, whether Western unity is concerned. But as uh, winter sets in, as uh, the inflationary trends accelerate, as Russia continues to use energy uh, as an instrument of war, because we know that Russians have been this week, um, uh, they have withheld gas supplies uh, in the name of maintenance and those supplies have not been resumed. Uh, Europe, Western Europe is saying that, that that's being done. Um, uh, this is weaponization of energy. Uh, and, uh, and of course, they are trying to reduce their dependence, but it's not going to happen. Uh, in a short term. So what we are looking at uh, very, very carefully at the moment is what is happening in the West and how will this unity that the Western nations have, uh, how this will be upheld in the coming uh, days and months. But from Russia's perspective, once again, so far they have raked in a lot of money because of the high energy prices. They've been able to sustain their war effort. Their main, main problem is manpower. They don't have manpower. They're, they're recruiting left, right and center, uh, you know, from prison, from from younger recruits. They've opened up, uh, you know, and, and it, this has been uh, their new recruitment policy. In fact, in some ways, is, is an acknowledgement that their plans, their war plans have not gone uh, as they had uh, anticipated in the early months. So both from Russian side, from the Ukrainian side, from the European side, there are new pressures that are emerging. Perhaps that will lead to some kind of an accommodation in the, in, you know, in the medium to long term. But in the short term, I'm afraid the war will continue and the toll that it is taking in Europe and the toll that it is taking across the world in terms of global economy, that will, be, that will also continue. The global divide is, very, uh, is much more sharpened now when you look at it, like America and the West and the, on the other side, the other bloc. Uh, Russia, China, and the rest. But India trying to maintain a balance between the two. As you mentioned earlier, India also participating in Vostok 22. Now, it hasn't gone down very well with the US to hers. And India is trying to maintain that balance there. But India is also participating here. So, uh, does that impact the India-American relationship? I, I don't think in the short term it will. I think certainly questions will arise. And if you read, in, if you read Western media, they have raise this issue in a, in a big way uh, in terms of India's participation. Now, now you know, that some things need to be cleared uh, because India is, has participated in such exercises, in such multinational exercises um, for years now. It, it, is, it is nothing new that is happening. Of course, the global context is different. And therefore, uh, you know, there'll be a lot of eyes. There are a lot of eyes on, 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 this, uh, on, on these exercises because we are now, we are now witnessing uh, a strengthening of Russia-China relationship. So when you have Russians and the Chinese together doing an exercise and India participating in it, it's very natural that questions will arise. But I think India has also, as I was mentioned, mentioning earlier, decided to take, um, decided to refrain from participating in certain sections of these exercises, certain parts of these exercises uh, around the Sea of Japan. So that is that is one element yes. that India that India is making it very clear that it is willing to go with Russia and China, but only so far. 
uh, you know, when it comes to certain aspects of, the, of, of their engagement, India is not uh, a participant. But let's also underscore that India conducts the largest number of military exercises with the U.S., uh, and the complexity of those exercises is also something to you know, which is very very unique. Uh, and and I and I think that alone explains uh, in some ways uh, the U.S. India defense dynamic, where just last month uh, India and the U.S. concluded their special forces exercises. In October they are going to conduct a very interesting exercise. Uh, in, in U.S. and Indian soldiers are going to be very exercising very close to the Chinese border. Chinese have raised this matter uh, publicly. Uh, and in some ways express the dis dissatisfaction. But I think this also tells you that India is trying to maintain, um, a, you know, a, a different position from Russia-China axis that is developing. India is trying to uh, develop its own, uh, uh, you know, identity when it comes to its engagement with multiple partners. But uh, ultimately, Nagma, this is these are the challenges of diplomatic promiscuity, and this is this is continue to happen for some time. India doesn't want to be. Um and rightly so, doesn't want to be identified with any of the groups. It's trying to maintain its distance from the Russia-China axis, but at the same time, not really totally being in on the other side, the other camp. But, uh, you know, we as we're talking about this, we're also looking at uh, the U.S.-China relationship. And uh, the U.S. has just approved a further sale of about $1.1 billion of weapons to Taiwan amidst a heightened U.S. China tension and of course the relationship or the tension there in that area between China and Taiwan which continues uh, in a very heightened manner ever since Nancy Pelosi visited and amidst all this now the approval of sale of the weapons that further will already I mean this area is already very tensed and militarized but it will further uh, increase the tension there and increase the chance of any kind of clash there. How do you see this approval? Of course, U.S. says that it is trying to help Taiwan in its self-defense and Taiwan needs to be armed more. But it creates another area where there is always a possibility of a clash. Indeed, and I think um, that's where we are, uh, you know, the relationship is going. And I think what Nancy Pelosi's visit to Taiwan has done it has opened up new possibilities for Taiwan and which Taiwan rightfully so is, uh, is, um, uh, is trying to take full advantage of. Uh, one, one of the aspects is that a number of other delegations have been visiting Taiwan after Pelosi's visit. So, so there, there have been um, uh, lots of other uh, American delegations have come. There have been delegations of some other countries as well that have visited Taiwan in the, in the last few weeks uh, post Pelosi. Uh, and this now, uh, you know, this uh, 1.1 billion dollars uh, worth of uh, high-end uh, uh, military component that is being delivered to Taiwan underscores that uh, that uh, America is now uh, willing to invest publicly in a relationship that it was investing much more, uh, uh, you know, uh, covertly in the past. Uh, U.S. Congress is taking positions uh, on this issue. U.S. Congress is is uh, is very uh, gung-ho on Taiwan at the moment. You, across the political divide, you see a consensus that Taiwan needs to be supported. And a lot of these uh, platforms, a lot of these weapons, uh, and, and a lot of these weapon flows, actually, were, uh, they, they were stuck uh, in, in, the, in the U.S. Congress for a while. And I think what the U.S. Congress is now trying to do is, is accelerate the delivery of these, because there is also a sense that... Um, uh, you know, that the, the conflict uh, in Taiwan uh, may surprise us all uh, and, and therefore China may surprise us all. So I think, uh, you know, we have heard very, very recently, I think just this week, uh, 
a Taiwanese defense minister saying that, look, uh, uh, Chinese are preparing uh, for a war and we have to be prepared as well. And then we are prepared. Uh, Taiwan is, is making a case. And, and then in that preparation, America is certainly going to play a very important role. So I think that flashpoint that Taiwan has become, that dynamic is, is certainly going to be very, very important. And in the Indo-Pacific at the moment, uh, more than any other theater, it's the Taiwan Strait. And that will that you know that is the most crucial element uh, in in whether Indo-Pacific will be able to maintain its security, stability, and prosperity in the coming decades. Absolutely, but at the same time, a very important development here in India, the, the uh, India's first indigenous aircraft carrier Vikram has been commissioned into the service of the Navy, and uh, that of course has elevated India's position. Uh, as a maritime power and, uh, you know, as a two-water Navy. But uh, how does it, uh, I mean, how does it really affect our naval capability? Why does it matter? Uh, how will it uh, help us in our role, in India's role in the Indo-Pacific and in the, Indo -Indo, uh, in, in the Indian Ocean? Because we know that the ever-expanding People's Liberation Army Navy uh, poses a challenge to India. So this first indigenously built aircraft carrier definitely elevates India's position as a naval power. But we also see that there's already uh, talks about which aircraft carrier will be will be actually bought for this. And there is a competition between the American Hornet and the French Rafale. So uh, how, how does it matter and why does it matter to India? I think it's a great feat in some ways to be able to uh, design uh, and operationalize your own, um, uh, uh, you know, um, aircraft carrier and and it's a, it's a highly complex um, uh, endeavor and indian navy has been able to significantly uh, make a case that that it is uh, it is able to uh, produce this indigenously and that makes india as as you were mentioning uh, among a handful of nations that, that are able to do this so it's a great feat in terms of our, uh, our indigenous capabilities it's a great feat in terms of our uh, ability to be self reliant in critical defense technology uh, and this show, showcases a great desire on the part of India uh, to, uh, you know, to uh, make uh, uh, the indigenization process of India's defense products more mainstream. If you can do it with aircraft carriers, you can do it with um, uh, other technologies as well. That's a message that has gone out that India is serious about self-reliance. India is serious about making India. India is serious about its defense manufacturing base. And this, uh, this, te this technological feat certainly gives greater confidence, will give greater confidence to Indian defense planners as they move forward uh, you know, uh, along that route. In, in, in more ways than one, you know, nothing, uh, nothing speaks uh, of power projection uh, more expansively than an aircraft carrier. So having this aircraft carrier now, uh, so this second aircraft carrier, uh, will give India uh, greater space to maneuver in the, in the larger and the wider expanse of the Indo-Pacific. And, and in some ways, uh, you know, uh, give greater credibility to India's claims of being uh, an Indo-Pacific player, of a, of a larger maritime player in the region. And, and uh, with, the, with an aircraft carrier, you can send multiple signals. Uh, it's, of course, a demonstration of force, but it is also uh, it gives you also an ability to project power in a softer sense. So the soft power ability of India that you, know, you can uh, help other nations at a time of critical uh, problems, you can uh, sh uh, sail through sea lanes of communication and demonstrate your ability to be a benign player. Those, all those things matter when it comes to uh, naval power. And I think that's what this capability will do 
for India's naval power projection in the neighborhood. But again, uh, this is just the beginning. The, the maritime contest in the Indo-Pacific has just begun. Chinese are much more active. You know, we took so many years, uh, I think more than two decades to uh, come to this place uh, uh, where, where we now have this our indigenously developed aircraft carrier capability. Uh, but Chinese are doing it at, at a much faster rate. And their plan, uh, they have a plan to have uh, uh, six uh, aircraft carriers, uh, I think in a matter of decade. That, that, that will put pressure on India as it will put pressure on other actors. The question for Indian Navy will be, what? how do you reconceptualize your maritime doctrine in light of the changes in the technological space that are happening? There is a debate in India. There is a debate across the world on the role that aircraft carriers play and whether uh, for a Navy that, that has limited resources, where do you spend those resources? You know, the, the old debate of, of submarines versus aircraft carriers uh, will continue uh, the kind of technologies, the disruptive technologies that we are witnessing, hypersonic technologies that, that are now in the play, uh, you know, what what role do they play uh, in, in ensuring uh, the, the legacy of aircraft carriers is going to be an important variable. So I think what what it, what this aircraft carrier would also do, and, and, and Indian Navy has al- already made a demand for another aircraft carrier, which is, uh, which is uh, you know, under works now, uh, that uh, with, with limited resources, you'll have to find the best possible ways of leveraging your uh, naval power. So I think it also puts pressure on India's naval uh, experts, on India's uh, Indian Navy to think more creatively about its doctrine uh, and about its operational capabilities. So I think it, it, while it is a great uh, time for Indian Navy, it's, it's, a, uh, you know, uh, it's time to celebrate the achievements. It is also a time to think uh, about the long-term implications of what is happening in the Indo-Pacific, how do we think more creatively about using uh, available resources, and how do we bring to bear the greatest amount of naval power on the challenges that we face in and around India's periphery. And the challenge we face from um, China, as you mentioned, that China is developing its aircraft carrier at a much faster pace than what India is doing. The earlier one we had, the aircraft carrier was actually Russian built, Vikramaditya, and, and before that we deployed to the UK. Now, as we uh, come to the end of this episode, Harsh, if we have time, I would like you to comment upon the legacy of uh, Gorbachev, because Gorbachev just passed away, the former Soviet president and the last Soviet leader uh, who actually brought down the Iron Curtain. But when uh, he passed away, you know, there was mourning and there were, uh, there were, um, the world leaders were responding to it, but Putin took a long time and the reaction from Russia itself was very frosty. And it's very ironical. I mean, there have been reports that he was very, very upset about the Russia-Ukraine clash uh, that is happening now and how the entire area has changed again. So uh, I, mean, I would like to comment on that. Yeah, you know, like all, uh, like all great statesmen, uh, Gorbachev leaves behind the mixed legacy. But what is what is interesting is is that uh, uh, as as you point out, you can interpret his, his legacy uh, in, as to where, depending on where you are and in, in which part of the world you are. So Russians will have a different perspective. Eastern Europeans will have a different perspective. Western Europe will have a different perspective. And in countries which were not part of 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 that engagement, will have a different perspective. But there is no doubt that as a student of international politics. Uh, you know, uh, if you are a student, if you are an observer, then he transformed the world, right? You overnight from a bipolar to a unipolar world. That's a transformation that few 
uh, individuals are, are capable of. He revolutionized the way he, two words, perestroika and glasnost, uh, you know, that we, that we uh, associate with him, uh, ushered in a fundamental change in the way we thought about Russia, in, in, in the way Russians Soviet thought about their own um, nation. Uh, and of course, uh, the world looked at, at Russia. Then the liberalization process that he started led to uh, a political dissolution of the Soviet empire. And that in some ways uh, remains a, a legacy which many Russians uh, will find very, very hard to stomach because while he gave Russians freedom, economic freedoms, uh, he also uh, uh, ushered in uh, an age where Russia became from the front leading country of the world to a second tier nation. Now, uh, you know, uh, therefore, you see Mr. Putin, uh, who uh, thinks of uh, uh, the, you know, the, the disintegration of Soviet empire as the greatest geopolitical catastrophe of 20th century, would have a different view on, on what Gorbachev represented. But certainly, uh, as a, you know, his, his role in redefining the global order has been very significant. His role in redefining what Russia meant to the world, what Soviet Union, the, the transition from Soviet Union to Russia, he was the key player. He took decisions. He, under his watch, we saw the disintegration. We saw the Soviet empire crumbling. We saw new states emerging. Uh, but you know, it's you mentioned Ukraine war. While he, while he um, uh, was uh, critical of the Ukraine war, uh, you know, let's also remember that in 2014 he supported the annexation of Crimea. So, so the, you know, there are there are these mixed uh, uh, approaches. There are these mixed signals that he had, that he had, that he had been giving in his in his last few years in terms of where he saw Russia going. Certainly, he was not comfortable with where Russia was going. But uh, but as a as, as a nationalist also. Uh, he was there present at critical moments and his therefore his legacy remains very, very complex. And as we look at the Ukraine crisis today, uh, you have to go back to the source of that crisis. And for Putin, the, the disintegration of Soviet Union in some ways is the source of, of all that is wrong with the present balance of power in Eurasia. And he wants to rectify it uh, through, through uh, a war against Ukraine, uh, through, an, a, you know, uh, through the control over Ukraine. Whether or not he's able to do it remains to be seen. But I think as, as, as we talk of Gorbachev and as, as we end this discussion, uh, you know, you can put him in any category of, you know, in, in Russia, yes, there has been a frosty reception in Western Europe, a very warm uh, goodbye to him. But in other parts of the countries, as we look at him, uh, we also take lessons. Uh, and I think uh, from what he tried to achieve, he, he wanted to achieve a dramatic transformation. But that dramatic transformation in Soviet Union led to a dramatic, a dramatic change, which many in Russia would not have liked um, now and, and, and don't like, would not have liked then yes. and don't like now. So I think those, you know, those complexities make him a very challenging person to analyze. But I think for that reason alone, he's also a very fascinating personality of, of the 20th century as well. Absolutely. Very important leader. And like you, like you pointed out, it depends on where you are, which part of the world this, and what would be your reaction to his legacy and how would you analyze that so thank you so much for that analysis Hush. that's all that we have time for on this episode of the ideas factory thank you for watching thank you for tuning in to policy pod the orf podcast please subscribe to our channel for updates on upcoming episodes